During the times of the Mishnah, when there was not a fixed calendar, the Sanhedrin, which was the main largest base then, would need to decide each year whether to make that year a leap year. A leap year would mean adding an extra month, an Adar Shani, and the reason why leap years need to be added every few years is because the Torah, or one of the reasons is because the Torah says that Pesach always needs to fall in the spring. And because the Jewish calendar goes by the moon and not the sun, if there were never any leap years, then Pesach could end up in a different season. And because of that, the Sanhedrin would decide each year whether to add a leap year or not, and they could do so up until the last day of the year, until the last day of the first Adar. If they decide to add another Adar, then it would be a leap year. So what happens if Chorus HaMegillah B'Adar HaRishayin, if everybody read the Megillah in the first Adar, because the leap year had not yet been decreed, and then after Purim in its Abra it was decreed that that year would be a leap year. Says the Mishnah, Kronos of Adar Hashani, everybody has to read the Megillah and perform all of the mitzvahs of Purim again in the second Adar. During years in which there is a leap year, the date of Purim is always in the second Adar. And the Gemara explains that this is in order to celebrate the victory and the redemption from Homon and Achashverosh as close as possible to celebrating the redemption from Mitzrayim on Pesach. So since Pesach is one month later in Nisan, so Purim should be celebrated as so as close as possible, and so they didn't really keep Purim at all in the first Adar, because that year that comes out that it wasn't the date of Purim. Right? So as the Mishnah, Amen Adar Rishon Adar Asheni, there is no difference between the first Adar and the second Adar on a year in which there is indeed a second Adar. Except for reading the Megillah and performing the mitzvah of giving gifts to the poor people. And the same goes for eating the Su'udah of Purim, the meal, and giving Mishlach Monois. The point of the Mishnah is just to tell us that just like on Purim, it is forbidden to fast or to eulogize over people who had died, it is likewise forbidden to do so even on the 14th and 15th of Adarishain. Even though that year it's not going to be Purim, since it's sort of fit to be Purim, it is still forbidden to do those things on that date, even in Adarishain. Mishnah Hey, because the previous Mishnah said that Adarishain and Adarshani are identical, with only a couple of exceptions, the next three Mishnahis, really until the end of the Perek, go very much sidetracked and discuss many different cases, where we also compare two different things, which are very similar but have a couple of differences. Now, although the way the Mishnah says it implies that the differences it gives are the only differences which there are, it is quite clear that this is not a comprehensive list, and there are other differences which are not mentioned in the Mishnah. But the Mishnah lists sort of the main differences. There is no difference between Yom Tov and Shabbos, except for forms of work which are for the sake of food preparation. The Torah explicitly says that on Yom Tov, one is allowed to perform forbidden things which are regularly forbidden on Shabbos, as long as it's for the sake of food. The truth is, the Mishnah in Beitzah explains that according to Beis Hillel, any form of work which is permitted for the sake of food is also permitted for other things. So for example, just like you're allowed to carry food in a public domain, you'd also be allowed to carry anything you want in a public domain. But as it may, that is only permitted on Yom Tov, but not on Shabbos. Now there are other differences, for example, the punishment for violating Shabbos is much more severe. But the Mishnah is not listing every difference. Alright, next, Amen Shabbos Yom 
There is no difference between Shabbos and Yom Kippur. Except that if one violates Shabbos intentionally, then he is punished by man. If there are witnesses and he was warned not to do so, then he receives the death penalty of Skila, of stoning from the base din. On the other hand, if one violates Yom Kippur intentionally, even if there are witnesses who warn him, his punishment is Kores, which is his punishment from Hashem and not delivered by the base din. It's a very severe punishment. There's wide discussion as to what exactly the punishment is. Perhaps an early death and he's sort of cut off in some way from Hashem. The Torah says that that is the punishment for one who violates Yom Kippur. Mr. Vov, the Torah writes that one is able to make a vow, known as a nader, against any benefit from somebody else or from particular objects. And once one makes such a nether, it now becomes totally forbidden for him. It's sort of like an extra mitzvah upon him not to have any benefit from that other person or from those objects. As well as that, one is also able to make a vow that somebody else is not allowed to benefit from your property or from you. And in such a case, that other person would now have a additional prohibition upon himself not to derive any benefit from you. Now, these Nadorim can take on various forms. One doesn't have to prohibit all benefit. He could say, I'm making a neder against having any benefit to do with food, or which can lead to the benefit of food from a particular person. But if you think about it, most forms of benefit can ultimately lead to the benefit of food. For example, if he gives you money, you can now take that money and buy food with that money. And so the Mishnah says that essentially, There's no difference between somebody who is forbidden under a neder from benefiting at all from his friend to somebody who is forbidden under a neder to gain any food benefit from his friend. Because most benefits ultimately can be turned into the benefit of food. Elo, except for Derisa Saregel, treading with his feet, meaning going into his land, into his house perhaps, going through his property. One who is forbidden to have any benefit, of course, cannot do that. But one who is only forbidden to have food benefit, just being there in his property has nothing to do with food. And it's not as if he now has more ability to obtain food just from standing there, and therefore it will be permitted for him. And as well as that, utensils which are not used for food preparation, one who is only forbidden to gain from food benefit can borrow such items. Now the Gemara explains that if the general practice would be to rent out such items, let's say it's a very expensive tool, so you don't just lend it out, but in general one would charge money for it. So in that case it would be forbidden for this person to even borrow it because the owner of the item is allowing him to save money. And with that money which he would have needed to spend to get that tool from somebody else, because this person is giving it to him for free to use, so he saves money. And with that money which he saved he can now buy more food and therefore it will be forbidden even for him who cannot have any only food benefit. Alright, the second half of the Mishnah discusses a similar sort of idea, also a neder, but this is a different type of neder. This refers to Nidre Hekdash, where one vows to give something to the Besamikdash, or to offer a korban. And there are two ways in which one could do this. Either he could say that I make a neder, I'm making a vow, and I'm accepting upon myself to bring a korban to the Besamikdash. That's known as a neder in our Mishnah. And there is another particular form of a neder, which in our mission is known as a nedova, and this refers to somebody who says, he makes a vow, that he is going to bring this particular korban to the Beis Hamikdash for it to be offered up. 
So the Mishnah says, Amen and Nidorim and Davos, there's no difference to these two forms of vows. In either case, one needs to, of course, bring a carbon to the base Amikdash, and it's forbidden to delay bringing it. That is a prohibition in the Torah. Ella except Shanadorim Chayyab for Nadorim, where he did not specify a particular animal, so he is obligated, whatever happens, to replace whatever animal he was planning on bringing. Since he did not designate a particular animal, even if he had in mind a particular animal to bring, since in his vow he only accepted to bring a animal, so if the animal he, tr- he planned on bringing, he can't bring, so he has to bring a different animal. He accepted to bring a carbon. However, on a dove, so when it comes to an adava, where he only, des- he only vowed to bring this particular animal, in Chayyab he is not obligated to replace it. If, let's say, the animal dies, there is no obligation upon him at all to bring a different animal, because his entire vow was only focused on this particular animal. If he can't bring that one, then he can't fulfill his vow, but it won't even help to bring a different animal instead. Mr. Zion, one of the very severe forms of tumor which there are in the Torah, is a Zov. A Zov is a man who experienced certain substances exiting his body, and if that occurs at least twice within two days, then he becomes Tome as a Zov, and it's a very high degree of Tuma. In order for him to come to become Tohar again, for example, he has to wait seven days of not having any substances exiting his body, after which he needs to dip himself in a spring, a natural spring of water, not just a regular mikveh, but a natural spring of water in order to purify himself. Now the Torah says that if this happens three times, if substances exit his body three times within three days, then as well as him becoming very tome, he also needs to bring a carbon once he has purified himself. So Ein there's no difference between a Zov who sees two sightings, meaning substances exit his body twice, to somebody who sees this three times. Ela carbon except for bringing the carbon once he is purified. And the carbon is two birds. Alright, continues the Mishnah with a discussion of a Mitzayra, somebody who has Tzara'as, particular spots on his body, which the Torah says, depending on its appearance, could be a sign that this is a punishment for a particular thing. And if so, then this Mitzayra is Tome, he needs to leave the city for seven days, and there are many other laws which apply. And the truth is, the way that one becomes a Mitzayra is that he goes to a Kohen and he shows his spot which could be Tsaras to him, and either the Kohen would tell him he's Tomei, in which case immediately he would become a Mitzayra, or he would tell him that he needs to wait a week, in which case this Mitzayra Muskar is what is known as, which means a Mitzayra who is closed up because he is closed up in a room, in a building, outside of the city for a week, and then he comes back to the Kohen after that week, and the Mitzayra looks at it again, and at this point he might say Tomei, or he might say it's okay. The point is, the Mishnah tells us that in there's no difference between a Mitzayra who is locked up in this room for that week where he's not sure whether it's Tzara'as, and a Mitzayra Muchlot, who is a definite Mitzayra. There's no difference between them, meaning they are both Tomei, and they both need to be outside of the city. Ella except Priya Ofrima, letting his hair grow. Only a definite Mitzayra is forbidden to cut his hair. And a prima, only a definite Matsura needs to tear his clothes. But a Matsura Muskar, who is only in that sort of limbo stage, does not need to do those two things. However, he is Tomei and he cannot be within the city. The Mishnah continues, There's no difference between one who becomes Tohar after the week of being locked up to a Matsura who becomes Tohar after being a definite Matsura. Both of them need to dip themselves in a mikveh and their clothes in a mikveh in order to purify themselves and their clothes. However, there is a difference in that a definite Mitzayra has to shave all of his hair off, 
and he has to carry out the procedure involving birds, tzipporim birds. The Torah says that he needs to bring two birds, slaughter one of them, set one free, and that is only a requirement for the definite mitzvah. The truth is that there's another big difference, and that is that the definite mitzvah has to bring other karbonis as well to the base of whereas the mitzvah musgar does not. But again, like most of these Mishnayas, there are other exceptions which are not listed in the Mishnah itself.